You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Since the last episode, and partially because the newness has nowhere near worn off, I have gone to three movies in the movie theater. And honestly, I can't tell if movies are good at this point or if I'm just overjoyed that I'm back inside a movie theater. Since this is supposed to be a non-bougie film podcast, here are some two-sentence non-spoiler reviews of movie theater movies that I saw in a movie theater. Raya and the Last Dragon, gorgeous. One of the best Disney animated films in recent years. All I've got to say about this movie is I love me the con baby. Promising Young Woman. I still haven't seen The Father, but out of the seven Best Picture nominees for the Oscars I have seen, it is by far the best. The film is an incredibly accurate portrayal of trauma and recovery and less than healthy coping mechanisms. And finally, The Courier. I went into this film knowing nothing about it except the era and the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch and Rachel Brosnahan, a.k.a. Mrs. Maisel, were in it. It's a less dry espionage film than I was expecting, but actually really enjoyable. Biggest critique I have probably about this film is that about 15 minutes could have been shaved off the running time to make it a little bit tighter. Anyway, another month has come to an end. This week, for our last March Murder Madness episode, we're covering two controversies that in part led to the founding of one of the most highly regarded cinema organizations in the world. Hollywood has never been a reputable place, but they sure managed to fool a lot of people with the glitz and glamour they projected on the silver screen. If anything came to light or threatened to, powerful members of the studio usually found ways to sweep scandal under the rug. But one thing you can't typically hide is murder. Hollywood's pristine reputation became tarnished in late 1921, early 1922, as two high-profile scandals that took place five months apart brought to light the seedier side of Tinseltown to the public at large, the Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle scandal and the murder of director William Desmond Taylor. Today, you'll hear all about both of those. Trigger warning, there is some mention of sexual assault. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was one of the most popular actors in the world and had the movie star salary to back it up. Despite a tumultuous childhood, Roscoe's passion for performing saw him through his rough early years. His professional career began one night during an amateur talent show, where bad acts would be removed from the stage using a shepherd's crook. 
Yep, people actually did that. It wasn't just a cartoon gag. During his act, Roscoe's set wasn't going well, and he saw the crook coming for him, so he jumped into the audience in a panic. The audience went wild, thinking it was part of his set, and Roscoe ended up winning the competition. His vaudeville career was a go. In 1904, at the age of 17, Roscoe was invited by Sid Grauman to sing in his San Francisco theater. Roscoe was reportedly a very talented tenor. This opportunity allowed Roscoe to join the Pantages Theater Group, where he would soon become the main act. Roscoe married his first wife, Minta Durfee, on August 6, 1908. She and her husband would star in several films together in the early years of their film careers. Because people suck, they were quick to comment on the odd pairing the two made as Roscoe tipped the scales at 300 pounds and Minta was reportedly quite petite. The film business had come calling for Roscoe in 1909 when he starred in a short film for Selig Polyscope Company called Ben's Kid. Selig continued to cast Roscoe for the next four years until he left for Universal Pictures to star in the immensely popular Keystone Cop films. Despite his size, Roscoe was quite agile. He was also quite sensitive about his size and refused to do gags in Keystone Cops that made fun of this. He instead used his agility. Mac Sennett, the founder of the Keystone Cops, once commented that Roscoe was as light as his feet as Fred Astaire and was as graceful as a, quote, girl tumbler. As a result, Roscoe's comedies were known for their many chase scenes and sight gags. Roscoe was also a fan of the pie in the face trope, a gag that has become a symbol of the silent film era and one that Roscoe likely invented. Paramount snatched up Roscoe in 1914 with the offer of a thousand dollar a week salary and 20 of his box office profits. He also got complete artistic control over his films. All of this was unheard of at the time. In 1918, they renewed his contract for $3 million for three years. That would be roughly $51 million today. By this time, Roscoe was credited as Fatty Arbuckle, a name he didn't particularly care for, but one he recognized as an inevitability. When he'd play a woman, he was credited as the highly sensitive Miss Fatty. If anyone called him Fatty Arbuckle in his personal life, he'd remind them, quote, I've got a name, you know. On September 5th, 1921, Roscoe took a break from his busy schedule and went on a road trip with two friends to San Francisco. Despite the fact that he was recovering from second-degree burns on his derriere after an onset accident, the three checked in to the St. Francis Hotel, getting three rooms, two for sleeping and one for partying. Several women had been invited to the soiree, including aspiring actress Virginia Rappe. Virginia had appeared in several films, most notably for her one-time fiancé, Henry Lerman. Toward the end of the evening, Virginia was found in room 1219, the room Roscoe was sharing with one of his friends. Virginia was in clear distress. The hotel doctor was summoned and, upon examination, concluded that her symptoms were most likely caused by intoxication and gave her morphine to calm down. 
Two days after the party, Virginia was hospitalized. It came to light that she suffered from severe urinary tract infections, something that drinking alcohol made worse. When this happened, the pain, coupled with the intoxication, often led to Virginia tearing at her clothes and screaming, something very similar to what she was doing that evening at the St. Francis. At the hospital, Virginia's friend, whom had gone to the party with her, Bambina Maud Delmont, told her friend's physician that Roscoe had raped Virginia. The doctor found no physical evidence of this. The day after being admitted to the hospital, Virginia died from peritonitis due to a bladder rupture. Bambina told the police that she had told the doctors about what had happened that night, and Virginia's bladder rupturing likely happened as a result of Roscoe crawling on top of her during the assault. After a later press conference, Virginia's manager, Al Semniker, made further accusations claiming that Roscoe had used a piece of ice to violate Virginia, thus leading to her injuries. By the time it was reported in the newspapers, the ice had transformed into either a Coca-Cola or champagne bottle. None of this was ever substantiated with physical evidence. In reality, witnesses testified that Arbuckle rubbed ice on Rappe's stomach to ease her abdominal pain, and that's where the whole ice mythos came from. Bambina returned to the police again and again, giving further damning testimony against Roscoe, trying to extort money from him and his legal team. The case would go to trial, and unsurprisingly was a media circus. The worst of the false, exaggerated information about the trial and case came from William Randolph Hearst's newspapers, whom sold insane amount of copies with headlines about what may or may not have happened at the St. Francis. Hearst papers labeled Roscoe as a devious man whom used his weight to overpower innocent girls. Hearst would later claim that the stories he published during the trials, quote, sold more newspapers than any event since the sinking of the Lusitania. Wonder if he used those proceeds to buy his murder yacht from last week's episode. Roscoe was defended by those who knew him closely as a good-natured man who was shy around women and, quote, the most chaste man in pictures. However, studio executives, fearing negative publicity by association, stopped his friends and fellow actors from publicly commenting, fearing their names would get dragged through the mud behind Roscoe's. Since the studios controlled their careers and a good chunk of their personal lives as well, Roscoe's supporters were forced into silence. One of the only people who would speak out for him after this was Charlie Chaplin, as he was in Britain at the time of the accusations and pretty hard to touch by his studio. Another actor, William S. Hart, despite not knowing Roscoe at all, made disparaging remarks about Roscoe and whether or not he was guilty. He definitely thought he was guilty. So good to know that talking out your ass was alive and well long before the internet made it an Olympic sport. Roscoe was arrested for murder on September 17, 1921, and was in jail for three weeks until he could arrange bail. Matthew Brady, the prosecutor assigned to the case, saw the trial as an opportunity to make a name for himself. He was eyeing the California governorship, after all. Brady convinced witnesses to lie on the stand and relied on Bambina's testimony until the defense obtained a letter from her stating that all of this was an attempt to extort money. Because of her constantly changing story, Bambina's testimony would likely have ended any chance of any of this going to trial. But Matthew found another quote-unquote star witness. After hearing testimony from one of the party guests, Zay Previn, whom testified that Rappe told her, quote, Roscoe hurt me on her deathbed, the judge decided that Roscoe could be tried with second-degree murder. 
the first of three trials to decide whether or not Roscoe Arbuckle was Virginia Rappe's murderer began two months later on November 14th. At the beginning of the trial, Roscoe told his wife that he did not harm Virginia. She believed him and appeared regularly in the courtroom to support him, despite the fact that they were separated long before the night in question. Public opinion was so negative that she was later shot at while entering the courthouse and eventually stopped coming. Witnesses included yet another woman whom claimed that while at the party, she saw Roscoe smiling for hours after the alleged assault happened. Been scratching my head on how that proved he was guilty of something, but have come up with nothing. Her testimony was discredited shortly after on cross-examination as it was revealed that Matthew Brady had threatened to charge her with perjury if she didn't testify against Roscoe. A criminologist claimed that fingerprints on the door to the hallway proved that Virginia had tried to flee the room, but that Arbuckle had stopped her by putting his hand over hers. This was disproved by a hotel maid whom said the room had been thoroughly cleaned before an investigation ever took place. The hotel doctor claimed that an external force seemed to have damaged the bladder and that Virginia had told him she had been raped. He then recanted and stated that the bladder rupture could have been the result of cancer and the bruising on her body could just as easily have come from the jewelry she was wearing the night of the incident. When it was Roscoe's time to testify, he was succinct and unflappable. In his testimony, he claimed that Virginia came into the party room around noon that day and that sometime after he went to his room to change clothes after another party goer asked him for a ride into town. In his room, he found Virginia vomiting. He claimed that she told him she fell ill and asked to lie down and that he carried her into the bedroom and asked a few of the party guests to help treat her. When Roscoe and a few of the guests re-entered the room, they found her on the floor near the bed tearing at her clothing and going into violent convulsions. To calm her down, they placed her in a bathtub of cool water. Arbuckle then called the hotel manager and doctor. At this point, all those present thought Virginia was just very drunk, including the hotel doctor. The first trial took about two weeks with 90 witnesses and 18 doctors being called. The jury deliberated and the result was a 10 to 2 not guilty leading to a mistrial. One of the jurors' husband was a lawyer whom did work with the DA's office of San Francisco and she claimed that she'd vote guilty until hell froze over. I'm not versed in 1920s legal process, but I kind of feel like she should have been weeded out during jury selection. The second trial began on January 22, 1922, with a couple of new witnesses and some of the evidence, like the fingerprints, being proven to be falsified and therefore not used. This trial resulted in the same decision, 10 to 2. On to the third trial. The third trial began March 22nd. This time, the defense went aggressively against each witness that the prosecution brought up. Buster Keaton is said to have been in the courtroom and provided important evidence to prove Arbuckle's innocence. The defense set out to tarnish the prosecution's original star witness, declaring that Bambina Delmont was involved in sex work, extortion, and blackmail. During closing statements, Roscoe's lawyer reviewed how flawed the case was against his client from the very start and how Brady fell for the outlandish charges of Bambina, whom he described as, quote, the complaining witness who never witnessed. The jury this time deliberated for six minutes before coming back with a non-guilty verdict. Roscoe Arbuckle was not a murderer. However, the court of public opinion had killed his career.
Minta filed for divorce from Roscoe in 1923 on the grounds of desertion. They had been separated for years, even before the hotel incident, but she remained supportive of him through the trial as he was always a kind man. They reconciled very briefly, but divorced for good in 1924. Roscoe's career suffered for years. He was even financially supported by Charlie Chaplin at one point, as no one would hire him. Roscoe would develop alcoholism as a result. Other friends tried to help him get work, including Buster Keaton, whom tried hiring him in films to try and get him back on his feet. Eventually, Roscoe began using the name William Goodrich for directing. He would direct a series of comedic shorts for Paramount. And then in 1932, he began working for Warner Brothers. On January 28, 1933, Roscoe signed an extended contract with Warner Brothers to star in a feature-length film. That night, he went out with his friends to celebrate the first wedding anniversary of his third marriage, as well as the new contract. That night, he reportedly said, This is the best day of my life. Roscoe R. Buckle suffered a heart attack that night and died in his sleep. He was 46 years old. His widow Addie requested that his body be cremated, as that was R. Buckle's final wish. Arbuckle's scandal in the 1920s was one of five that took place around the time revolving around individuals on staff at Paramount Pictures, which was then known as Famous Players Lasky. In addition to Roscoe, there was the strange death of Thomas Ince in 1924, which we discussed last week, the death of silent film star Olive Thomas, whom accidentally died after ingesting mercury bichloride, which her husband had been using for his syphilis in 1920. In 1923, another famous player's Lasky star, Wallace Reed, died of a morphine overdose. And then there was the murder of director William Desmond Taylor. William Desmond Taylor was one of the most famous directors in town in 1922. But on the morning of February 2nd, 1922, his valet would find him dead of a gunshot wound inside his swanky Hollywood bungalow. The ensuing scandal and fallout would rock the infantile Tinseltown to its core. Known to his friends as Bill, William Desmond Taylor arrived in Hollywood seemingly out of thin air in 1913 to work as an actor before becoming a director at Famous Players, where he would direct more than 50 films and become one of the most respected in his field of that era. He worked with some of the biggest stars of the day, including Mary Pickford. William lived in the swanky, at the time, neighborhood of Westlake Park in Hollywood on the corner of Alvarado and Maryland. When his valet had come upon the body of his now-deceased employer, he was getting ready to make the director breakfast, as he usually did. At first sight, when coming through the front door, the valet only saw his employer's feet and called out to him. When there was no answer, the valet entered the apartment to find William face up in the living room, still dressed in his suit from the prior day and blood running from his mouth. 
The valet began yelling for help, alerting the neighbors. No struggle was immediately seen, and a crowd of his neighbors, mainly fellow Hollywood cohorts, congregated in the living room, which is a great way to maintain crime scene integrity. A random man claiming to be a doctor appeared from the crowd and examined the body. He said that William died of a stomach hemorrhage before disappearing back into the crowd, never to be seen again. Police arrived on the scene at 8 a.m., with the coroner arriving not long after at 8.40. The coroner had a slightly different conclusion as to the cause of the director's demise than the mystery doctor did. When the coroner lifted the body, a pool of blood was found beneath William. The coroner also found during the autopsy that a 38 caliber bullet through the back is what ended the man's life. Investigators also included, based on the entry point of the bullet on his suit and jacket, that William's arms must have been raised at the time he was shot. After investigating the case for some time, it would be estimated that William died around 7.50 p.m. on February 1st. In his pockets, investigators found $78 in his wallet, about $1,200 now, a silver cigarette case, a pen knife, a pocket watch, and a locket with the engraving, To My Dearest, which contained a photograph of actress Mabel Normand. On his finger was a two-carat diamond ring. Also in his home, police found a slew of valuables and a pink nightgown in a drawer. Clearly, this was not a robbery, but who could have possibly wanted to kill this esteemed director? The night of William's death, around 7.45 p.m., Mabel Norman departed from his bungalow, the last known person to see William Desmond Taylor alive. Mabel was a comedy star, whom got her start working for Max Sennett at Keystone Studios, where she often worked with Fatty Arbuckle and Charlie Chaplin. At the height of her career, Mabel had her own studio and production company. Around 7.50 p.m., William's neighbor, actor Douglas McLean, and his wife Faith, as well as the apartment manager of the building, heard a sound that they described as gunshot-like. When no other noises were heard, the respective parties assumed it was nothing. Faith also reported to police seeing a man around this time standing outside of William's bungalow, but the darkness concealed his face. The description she did manage to give police was that the man was Caucasian and dressed like, quote, my idea of a motion picture burglar. During the investigation, two men who worked at a nearby gas station described a similar looking man around 6 p.m. that evening whom was asking about where William lived. None of this has ever been able to be proven other than verbal accounts. At 8.15 p.m., William's chauffeur came to drop off the keys to the car, but since William was already likely dead at this point, William did not answer the door, even though all the lights were still on. The chauffeur drops the keys into the mail slot. As news of the murder spread, reporters descended upon the Alvarado Court apartments, hungry for anything scandalous that could be printed in the papers. It would eventually come out that Charles Eaton, the studio manager at Famous Players Lasky, gained access to the apartment before 
before the police even showed up. It is believed he removed items and potentially added others in the bungalow to prevent or at least reduce the scandal that was about to come to light. Edward King, the lead investigator on the case, would come to believe that famous players Lasky was hiding valuable information regarding the case and that it was threatening members of its staff from approaching the police with information they may or may not have. As the investigation progressed, police uncovered a lot of weird stuff happening in Williams' recent past. In late 1921, the director had been receiving strange phone calls. He'd pick up the phone and no one would be on the other end, just some kind of ambient noises. On December 4th, his home was broken into and he was robbed, with jewelry and some of Williams' imported gold-tipped cigarettes being stolen. Later that month, on December 27th, he received a strange package at his home. This led investigators to their first suspect, William's former secretary, Edward Sands. Before being under William's employ, Edward had already been charged with embezzlement, forgery, and serial desertion from the U.S. military. Though born in Ohio, Edward reportedly spoke with a Cockney accent. While traveling with William Desmond Taylor in Europe during the summer of 1921, Edward got busted forging more than five grand in checks in William's name, which if I did the math right, comes out to roughly $75,000 in today money, and then topped off the trip by crashing William's car. Edward was busted for stealing from William's apartment, too. He had also been reportedly trying to dig up dirt on his former employer in the hopes of extorting him further. It was reported that William had stated that if he ever saw Edward again, he'd kill him. After William's murder, what police did discover as a result of looking for Edward Sands is that William Desmond Taylor was not whom he had claimed to be. William Desmond Taylor was born William Cunningham Dean Tanner in Carlow, Ireland on April 26, 1872. He was one of five children of former British Army officer Major Currens Dean Tanner and his wife Jane O'Brien. Young William attended Marlborough College from 1885 to 1887, where he'd dabble in acting. In 1891, at the age of 19, he left home behind for a dude ranch in Kansas. After rediscovering his love for acting in the Sunflower State, William moved to New York to pursue acting. While there, William met and eventually married actress Ethel May Hamilton. The two married on December 7, 1901 and had a daughter in either 1902 or 1903. The family was also fairly well-known members of New York society, belonging to several clubs. It has been stated that William suffered from depression, bouts of amnesia, as well as a wandering eye. He was known to rarely abstain from the arms of a beautiful woman. On October 23, 1908, William disappeared from New York without a trace, leaving his wife and young daughter in the wind. Though at first his wife believed he must have suffered from a mental lapse, Ethel eventually obtained a divorce from William in 1912 on the grounds of desertion. By the time she did this, he was already living on the other side of the country with a brand new name. 
Not much is known about what William got up to in those intervening years between 1908 and 1913, though it was uncovered that he'd spent some time in Canada, Alaska, and the Pacific Northwest where he'd mine for gold during the day and perform at the theater group at night. Around 1912-ish, he landed in San Francisco, where he would change his name to William Desmond Taylor to protect his reputation for where he was headed next. While anything but moral behind the scenes, Hollywood required those on their payroll to have pretty pristine public personas. An abandoned wife and child on the other side of the country was anything but. A few of his former New York pals, like great buddies, will do, helped him get set up in Hollywood, and the rest, as they say was history. The mysterious package that had shown up at Williams' home back in December 1921 was sent from Stockton, California, and contained a pawn slip for the jewelry Edward Sands had stolen from the apartment. On the slip was Williams' former name, William Dean Tanner. Also included in the package was a note stating, quote, So sorry to inconvenience you, even temporarily. Also, observe the lesson of forced sale of assets. A Merry Christmas and a happy and prosperous New Year. The note was signed by alias Jimmy V. The handwriting on the note was similar to Edwards, and police tried to lure him back to Los Angeles using a former girlfriend as bait. This did not work, and Edward was neither seen nor heard from again. William's past seemed to be a red herring. Police then set their sights on the last person to see William alive, Mabel Normand. There had been a long-standing rumor in town that the two had been seeing each other romantically. The fact that a locket containing her photograph was found on William's body certainly made it look that way. Mabel admitted that they were pen pals, and their correspondence, the stuff that was turned over by famous players anyway, were eventually monikered the Blessed Baby Letters, which was William's pet name for her. Mabel claimed that it wouldn't bother her if the letters were ever made public, but she did state that the contents might be, quote, misunderstood. Her side of the correspondence was not found at Williams' home and led police to believe that this could have been one of the items Charles Eaton removed before the police arrived. Eaton did eventually release some of Williams' private papers to investigators, and likely anything the studio didn't want them to know about was likely locked up real tight somewhere on the back lot. The Blessed Baby letters were turned over to Chief Deputy D.A. W.C. Doran on February 9th. The contents were pretty innocuous overall. One, one of the only ones you can really find online, was a letter from Mabel saying she wasn't going to be able to make it for dinner that evening. But let's be honest, we all know the muckety-mucks over at Famous Players had a look through and withheld anything salacious. If there was anything salacious at all. Police would grill Mabel for hours and search her home, during which time they did uncover two 25 caliber guns, which did not match the 38, which was determined to be the murder weapon. Therefore, she probably didn't kill William Desmond Taylor. Mabel was inconsolable at William's funeral, which took place six days after his death. 
Her proximity to this case, coupled with another scandal involving her chauffeur and the wounding of an oil millionaire with a gun that belonged to her in 1924, destroyed her career. In 1926, she contracted tuberculosis and passed away in February of 1930. She was 36 years old. The true nature of her relationship with William was never made public. Additionally, Mabel had gone to William for help kicking her cocaine habit, something that she had a very difficult time doing. Mabel's relapses were devastating to William, whom took it upon himself to stop her from getting a hold of the drug at the source. According to author Robert Giroux, whom wrote the book A Deed of Death, The Story of the Unsolved Murder of Hollywood Director William Desmond Taylor, William was astutely anti-drug and had met with federal prosecutors shortly before his death, offering to testify against Mabel's drug dealers. Surely this could have angered the wrong person, perhaps even enough to take out a hit on the director. It certainly would describe Faith McLean's statement. Well, nothing ever came out of this either. Mabel was also not the only beautiful young actress to be accused of the murder. The other was 19-year-old Mary Miles Minter, whom was madly in love with William, the feelings of which were reportedly not mutual. Could this broken-hearted young woman be the culprit? Letters found in William's home included love letters from Mary, some of which were for some reason written using a cipher. When decoded, the contents were more or less standard love fare. One of the items that had been turned over to the DA's office had included a handkerchief with the initials MMM. Some also reported that the pink nightgown found in the bungalow had the same letters embroidered on it, which would place the love-struck young woman there at some point. Mary claimed they had never slept together. When the news of his death had reached her, Mary rushed to his apartment, making a scene in front of the reporters upon arrival. Mary's letters were printed in the papers, and she was vilified in the process, destroying her wholesome on-screen image forever. When her contract was finished at Famous Players, she was let go from the studio. Several producers did offer her work, but Mary never worked in Hollywood as an actress again. Mary's mother was fingered as well, and frankly, when going through everything, she's my favorite suspect. The woman was reportedly overbearing and had pushed her daughter into acting in the first place. She'd also had her daughter steal the name and identity of a dead cousin so Mary could work as an adult in the film industry. At the time of William's death, Mary and her mother Charlotte Shelby were in a financial dispute as well as a few lawsuits. The theory as to why Charlotte might have committed the crime was that she was angry that Mary was attracted to this older man and feared losing control over her daughter. She had threatened on more than one occasion that she'd kill William if he didn't stay away from Mary. When questioned by police, Charlotte was evasive and clearly being deceptive. The most damning thing, though, for 1922 police work was that Charlotte owned a 38 caliber pistol as well as the same rare bullets that had killed William. After this fact was made public, Charlotte allegedly chucked the gun in question into a Louisiana bayou. Charlotte also knew the Los Angeles district attorney socially and some say romantically and spent years abroad in an effort to avoid both official inquiries by her DA friend's successor and press coverage related to the murder. Her other daughter, Margaret Shelby, accused Charlotte of committing the crime in 1938. Margaret was suffering from depression and alcoholism at the time, so no one put a lot of stock into her statement. 20 years after the murder, Byrne Flitz, the Los Angeles district attorney at the time, declared there was not enough evidence to convict her, and Charlotte was finally cleared. 
No one was ever arrested or charged for the death of William Desmond Taylor due to a combination of poor crime scene management and apparent corruption from within the police department. Much physical evidence from the case was lost almost immediately and the rest of it vanished over the years, although copies of a few documents from the police files were made public in 2007. Various theories have been put forward after the murder and in the years since, and many books were published, claiming to have identified the murder, but no conclusive evidence has ever been uncovered in linking the crime to any particular individual. Whether it was jealousy, lust, rage, or drugs that eventually did William Desmond Taylor in, the world will likely never know. But his death, coupled with the drug and alcohol-related deaths of Olive Thomas, Wallace Reed, and several others, the Fatty Arbuckle scandal, and the mysterious death of Thomas Ince, led to morality clauses being added to all future studio contracts in town. These events also partially served as motivation for the foundation of an organization known as the Academy of Motion Picture arts and sciences. But that, dear listeners, is a story for next week. You know the drill. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me with questions at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you don't want to do the support page, I also have a Venmo account set up, which is also in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next month is a month-long series on the Oscars and the Academy. Academy that puts them on. We'll start next week with the origin story and how the biggest prize in show business was born. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Mm-hmm.